Hey folks, a uh, quick word about uh, this episode. It's uh, got some slightly rough audio uh, due to me learning the ropes. Uh, I would have gone ahead and re-recorded this episode, but I think some of the conversation here is really quite good and I didn't want to reset it. So apologies for the bad audio quality, but I hope you enjoy the content nonetheless. Good morning, people of the internet. You are listening to Debbie Radio 79.5 FM, a Movies by Minute podcast where we discuss gross point blank, one minute at a time. I'm Hugh. And I'm Deb. And on today's show, we're going to be looking at minute two, starting with the very end of the opening credits and ending with a rendition of the high school reunion letter by the wonderful Joan Cusack. Mm, absolutely. Well, Joan Cusack, absolutely national treasure, I think, in America, yes? <laughs> I, You know what? I think the entire Cusack family has contributed so much to my enjoyment of life in, in the form of film. <laughs> um, and the fact that there are three Cusacks in this movie makes me very, very happy. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting she was nominated for two Oscars, although she's not one. That's kind of interesting. I always assumed she was like, she just got one. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She got a supporting role nom for uh, Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Working Girl um, in 89, and then in 98 uh, for um, Gay Rom-Com In and Out with Kevin... Um, oh, flipping heck, what's his name? Oh, guy who was in Physical Wonder, Kevin... Oh, uh, oh, God. Kevin Klein. That's it. That's it. Kevin yeah, Klein. I, I was stuck on the same name that it definitely wasn't as you were, I think. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> she, but I'm, I'm, you know, she got nominated for that. And funnily enough, that was another um, Hollywood Pictures film. And, and I know we're already off on a pretty hardcore tangent, tangent but um, you definitely need to watch the Hallmark movie that she's in because oh? it's actually pretty phenomenal. Um, okay, so for listeners uh, who are new to Dev and I as friends, this is a thing that we've been discussing of late because Dev's wife is an expert in Hallmark films. I think is a fair comment. Would you say? Certainly, a, a, a an enthusiastic fan. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. Well, that. is that better? Worse than an expert? I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm dead either way, but we'll go with it. Hey, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I told you, I've done a podcast before on a Hallmark film. You know, um, yeah. I, I have three or four, uh, three podcasts under my belt from the last five years. So any listeners who are looking around for who we are will find uh, my name attached to a couple of others, one of which is a, a history-based podcast in which uh, my co-host there, we look at history, historical films and look at talk about the historical elements. And we decided for fun for a Christmas episode. We would watch a Hallmark film that involves a time-travelling knight who supposedly is travelling from Norwich to America. Yeah, you Except see, Norwich, I'm, you know. I'm, I'm telling you that a, uh, a Hallmark movie with both Joan Cusack and Danny Glover in it is going <gasps> to be significantly better. Yeah. I love Danny yeah. Glover. <laughs> I know. I just oh. needed to, to fit that in to really sell it nice. to Nice. Mm, very nice. Um, yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal... Phenomenal movie by uh, Hallmark Christmas movies standards, Mm. and I do actually quite enjoy the other Hallmark movies. So, I mean, ain't nobody saying there's anything wrong with them. I I mean, there's a lot wrong with them, but that doesn't stop them being enjoyable. (laughs) Okay, now that's now that's out of the open. (laughs) 
and and to be fair to them, they are trying to address some of the gaping flaws with with the genre as a whole. So, oh, okay. credit to them on trying. Hmm. Fair enough. Um, is it called Let It Snow? No, I I actually oh, okay. just sent you the link. It's called The Christmas Train. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. I'm trying to think of somebody else who's made as much of a career as she has out of being. Um, there's a few people from like the 80s and 90s who kind of settled into supporting roles, if you know what I mean. Like, I don't want to call yes. it the best friend because that was like the term for the rom com thing, right? The best friend actress. But yeah, absolutely. Just... No, I feel like she actually has quite a lot in common with Angela Lansbury. In, in some funny ways. Oh. Now, Angela Lansbury tends to be much more of a leading role, uh, obviously with, uh, you know, Murder, She Wrote in particular. Hmm. But um, that uh, woman who constantly gets cast as somebody who's quite significantly older than she actually is, hmm. that Angela Lansbury kind of resigned herself to fairly early on. I feel mm-hmm. like Joan Cusack kind of got put into the same kind of bucket and, and rocks it in exactly the same way as Angela Lansbury. That's a really interesting way to look at it. I I think, I you know, I've never heard her put in the same breath as Lansbury, and that is so appropriate, so perfect. Um, yeah, absolutely. I will completely 100% go with that. Um, I'm intrigued by the... F- Sorry, I don't want to go down rabbit holes, but I'm intrigued, as a horror fan, I'm intrigued by the fact that The Christmas Train is directed by a guy who started out on Prom Night 2 as a director. <laughs> <laughs> I did not realize that. Just, just he's he's done nothing but Hallmark films for like ages now, and it's just it is always funny where people start. Like horror is a beloved genre for a number of reasons, but where people go from that genre is is is, is always fascinating. Um, so coming back to Gross Point Bank and the cast, because this is the minute we're on. We are on minute number two. And we finished minute number one without even talking about the cast because we were talking about production and the director. So let's talk uh, about cast um, briefly because we've got a lot of other things to cover in minute two. Um, but just briefly, we mentioned Joan Cusack, who is American National Treasure, and John Cusack, who I feel like this is... Everyone says High Fidelity is the quintessential John Cusack film, which he made after this. I think this is the quintessential John Cusack film. I agree, and I think I think we both might be a little bit biased because um, for us being British, I, I, I'm, a, I'm making an assumption here, but um, when I hear the term high fidelity with regards to, you know, not the audio equipment per se, I actually mm. think of the Nick Hornby novel, right, that yeah. the movie is based off of. And mm-hmm. I don't think that book was quite as big of a hit in the US as it was in the UK. And in the UK, you know, Nick Hornby had several very, very big successes. Fever yep. Pitch, which was also made into a movie, High Fidelity, probably being the two biggest ones. Um, and so... I mean, Battle Boy did pretty well afterwards. Oh, yes, also true. Um, uh, but I, because of that, I struggle to think of it in terms of the movie. And I've seen the movie, and it's fine... I personally feel that it lacks some of the elements of the book, partly because it is done by Americans in America, which I think it just doesn't work as well. Uh, and, and I often feel that 
way, like Gull on the train, I had the same kind of frustration with, despite them doing a fairly good job at, at translocating it. Um, mm. And and so for me, Gross Point Blank has no other baggage to it. it it's a film that exists on its own. Mm. And it, you know, obviously he's got writing credits for it. He is the lead actor in it. It really does feel like his his baby in a way that something where I know it from a previous incarnation just doesn't hold true. I mean, GPB is an original, right? You and I are recording this in an era of <clears throat> maximum uh, carnage when it comes to remaking, rebooting, reusing IP, right? IP is more important than original script writing, as one as several of my producer friends will tell you. And I think, but then I mean, that's not how they like it. That's just how it is, right? Um, I think it's interesting that uh, the when it comes to um, something like Gross Point Blank, I can't imagine. I'm trying to think of something recent that is similarly, yeah, independent production, first time production by a movie star with some cachet, but not necessarily the cachet necessary, necessary to pull a, a film like this off director who at that point hadn't made a film in seven years either, you know, English actress on her way up, not yet a big star. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just, it, <laughs> I think the only, the only area you can find anything like that anymore is the horror genre. Yes. I think there's still scope for it in horror because horror is traditionally small budget. Um, it you know a success or a failure doesn't really matter if you get one success in a hundred you're probably paying off all the failures as well and yeah. and those are pretty good odds um yeah. so you can get away with this kind of stuff in that genre in yes. almost everything else movies have become too big to fail and because yeah. they're too big to fail they have to you know play it safe in every regard I mean, I've seen a few. I mean, there are still a handful of mid-budget stream action as made for streaming, um, or you know, to clean up on 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 DVD slash whatever equivalent what's left of the home video market. But majority of those tend to be not as well written as Gross Point Blank. I mean, thinking yeah. of um, oh, I'm thinking of a, a couple of films recently by Scott Adkins called The Debt Collectors, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and they are. They're low-budget actioners, but they're very well put together, and they're actually quite well written and quite funny. They, they kind of—they're not a million miles away from the tone of what we're looking at here, but they're much more rough and tumble because they're about people who collect debts from dodgy people. You know, it's—it's—it's not—it doesn't have. There is a, there's a degree of sophistication to Gross Point Blank. You know, the jokes require not education. But there is wit rather than simply jokes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think this harks back to one of the reasons I love it, right? It's, mm. it's not explaining to the basest audience in the way that films have a habit of doing. It mm. will make a joke, have a throwaway line. You may get it, you may not, but things happen so quickly that you're not going to dwell on it. You're just mm. going to move with things. And if all you get out of it is the action and the, the visual stuff, you're still going to mm. come out happy. And if you pick up the the one-liners and the ad-libs and the little references here and there along the way, 
mm. all the better. And and that's mm. incredibly hard to pull off. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And even though now looking back on it, it seems like it was easy to do because the the 90s are full of this stuff, right? I mean, <clears throat> you know, Pulp Fiction heralds its success at Cannes. Uh, and let's be honest, its success in Cannes is mostly because Clint Eastwood was the head of the jury that year. Uh, and, and, and as a number of people, including Clinton himself said, um, when asked, because the jury was split on it, and he cast the deciding vote, and he said, oh, it's the kind of film I'd like to think I would have made when I was young kind of thing. I think it was, I seem vaguely recall him saying that in an interview on French TV, but, um, uh, and I disagree. I don't think he'd have made that. I think he'd have made a much better version of the film. (laughs) 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 But I know what he means, the kind of the, 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 you know, and I think, and that obviously set off a, a buying frenzy and a production frenzy and people, you know, we had this whole boom in, you know, American comedy crime or, or cr- crime with a comedy element, or you know, but also the 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 the, music, the, 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 the deliberate juxtaposition and contrast of pop music and lighthearted music with violence, <laughs> as the beginning of this film does as well, um, yeah. and you know, which is such a staple that now you know James Gunn can pull that rubbish in a in a Guardians of the Galaxy and everyone goes oh that's fine it's a Disney film with the 12A and oh look he's you know slaughtering like an entire crew to 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 old to pop music and you're going really this is what we do now at 12A you know anyway but but guns from the 90s that's normal for him that, that's how he does things um so I think I think in that sense looking back on it you think oh yeah that was everyone was doing it that was normal and actually you know you realize it was actually hard work for QZ to pull this off because it isn't just the combination it's the tonal balance of gross point blank is insanely it's like it's a perfect knife edge of you know just this balance this high wire act yeah absolutely and the opening scene has it straight away it's fast it's relatively fast cut you know things are set up very quickly you're in media res there's dialogue already conversations are happening clearly your know, guns already being prepped you know violence is around the corner um, and, and you know, this is something that I'd not really thought about until you and I were discussing how we were going to record this show, um, that the protagonist in this is a psychopath. Like, I mean, th- they are almost textbook definition of a psychopath. And yet they are a character that we relate to very, very quickly and very, very strongly. and. To pull that off is something that is kind of scary that it's it's been done so well. I I I I question. Okay, this is going to sound very very weird. I question whether or not he truly is a psychopath. I I know that's the joke of the film, right? Is he says he is, right? But he spends the entire film trying to move beyond that. Like, yeah, like, I mean, like... he says he says the exact opposite, right? He says, like, I'm not a psychopath. A psychopath kills for no reason. I kill for money. Yeah, but the, you know that what he means is, yes, I am. I just have a but license he... to do it. Exactly. And and I think you're right, right? Like, it, it falls into the same pitfall as Dexter did, right? Where yeah. the character ultimately ends up not performing to the... 
the prognosis of, of the original character. But I think that's the point. I think the whole point, of course, from like for me at least, in terms of character arc and emotional development. And I think this is why it's interesting that it's seen as such a Midwest film and it's his background and it's his mates who are co-scripting it, which, by the way, they also worked on the adaptation of High Fidelity, which explains why these two films are so similar and also explains why, for you and me, as an adaptation, it doesn't necessarily really work as well as it should. Um, So, but I think, I, I think it's less about being... I mean, you say he's a psychopath. I I see. I mean, maybe it's because I work with too many people who are ex-military now. I don't know. I feel like he is somebody who's been taught how to behave in a certain way. He now earns a living from it. But I don't get the impression, unlike (laughs) unlike the other character we meet very, very soon, next minute, um, played by Dan Aykroyd, I don't think... Now, he, I think, is truly psychopathic. Because he will do absolutely horrific things, and you can see that there's a degree of relish in it. It comes back to this... So there's this really weird thing in movies about the notion of... And this goes back all the way... Like, even, you know, going back to Melville's Le Samurai in the 60s, but even before that, the idea of the professional killer, Right. I don't do this because I like it. I do it because it's a talent and I'm good at it. And it's a skill. I'm trained at it and I enjoy it. And that's the, you know, it's not so much enjoyment, but you know, I do it. Right. But the problem is, is where is that line? Okay. Where is that line between you, the person and the person you have been trained to be? Because to my mind, way of thinking is, and again, looking at 90 cinema, the real psychopaths are the ones with no ability whatsoever to connect. One of the reasons I absolutely adore his speech in the final scenes, and again, we'll have to save this for later when we get there, but when he's trying to explain himself while in the middle of a massive gunfire (laughs) to his, you know, ex-girlfriend. And it's like, but the point is he's trying to do that. And I feel like that's the thing that makes him not a psychopath. A psychopath wouldn't even bother with... yeah. And, Any and I, of the emotional arc in this film, and and this movie relies on that redemption arc, I guess. Uh, I think it does because yeah. you know, like he says, Uncle Sam gave, taught, taught me to be this. You know, there's a there's a an interesting subtle commentary there on militarization and you know, yes, I mean, certainly encouraged it. I think the fact that you know he describes himself on prom night as wanting to kill somebody, and that's why he yeah. joins the army. Like, I mean, there was definitely a seed of something before that. Um, but the, but you and I, I'm sorry, but that's relatable. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, you know, it, it's not about being psychopathic. That's about being a teenager. That's about being a teenager with with you know more hormones than sense, right? That is true. And I was going to say, I'm not sure I've ever wanted to kill someone so badly as to join the army. Um, uh, but I would say that I think for a lot of young people in certain parts of america that does sometimes feel like the best career path yeah absolutely although although i think that argument breaks down i'm just arguing against myself at this point which makes me great <laughs> idea, but, um, i love this i can just set you going and i'll let you finish you do both sides <laughs> of the argument off you. yeah I'll, I'll just talk with my other self right like no, no psychosis here um this is set in Gross Point, right? This is a very, very Michigan. wealthy suburb of 
Detroit, Michigan, right? Mm. At the time, this is still a Detroit that's maybe not in the prime of Oh, God, uh, no, this is Elmore Leonard's Detroit. Yeah, but, this is not a great place. Um, but Gross Point is still living fat off of that wealth, right? And yeah. And these kids going to Gross Point High, for the most part, have probably got pretty good outcomes, I would suspect. So... I think the the argument that you know the army seems like a good option, maybe. Well, I think it's a good option. See. He says that, right? He says it's a good option. The mm. point is, he doesn't. He, he's like, oh, I have this rage to do something. Yeah. Therefore, I should go get this job, which we both know is the kind of logic of teenage boys, <laughs> right? It's maybe. Not, it does well. I teach them now. Trust me. This is, <laughs> this is the logic. Like, oh, I'm not saying it's it's logical. I'm just saying this is the internal logic of that age range and that time. It's like I really want to kill her. Going, oh, maybe I'd make a game. <laughs> you know. Um, and I, I, I just, I just feel like I, I don't think he was naturally a psychopath. I think, I think he's a classic. Uh, punk outsider different from everyone else so he thinks he is goes away gets turned into a killing machine and now he's at that point that and this is where the arc is so interesting because <laughs> this is the arc most of us go through in relation to certain jobs <laughs> and careers because <laughs> he's at that point where he's like i've been doing this a while now and i'm starting to think maybe <laughs> <laughs> this is why it's such a relatable film because he's like, yeah, you know, wait, you want me to join a union? What's going on? <laughs> it, it's just, you know, that's what's so clever about it is they've given him the arc that other people he he goes back to meet, you know, he's even from where he's from, would probably get if he wasn't a killer. Yeah, and that's yeah. the cleverness of this film is yeah. to is to make it sound normal. As all yeah. this mayhem is happening, conversations are reasonably kind of, you know, yeah, normal for... for... <sighs> I, I'm going to yeah. bring this up now rather than a later podcast because this is something I will always come back to. One of my dear friends in the in, in, in media and, and literature has, has once said to me a long time ago, and this is a thing that stands me in good stead when I'm looking at um, the way film, TV, books, games work, is... A great. He's, he talked to me about what it is that audiences respond to inside certain characters. Therefore, there's a success. So, for example, <clears throat> the success of Fleming's Bond books in the fifties, before Kennedy, then you know, says, "Yeah, this is my plane airplane reading," and they blow up. Uh, let me rephrase that. <laughs> they become hugely successful. Um, there it, it, it is because you suddenly have a cadre of men in suits flying places because flight is in now and affordable and jetting off for jobs and, you know, landing in different places and suddenly going, oh, you know, I'm here. I'm only here for one night. Who am I going to find at the bar? You know, and that whole approach, the style of Bond as Fleming sees him, a man who flies out on jobs from his head office, you know, gets a room in the hotel, goes for a drink, finds a pretty girl to talk up, but then he's still got a job to do. Yeah. I mean, it's it's that evolution of the Doc Savage into Superman into the the Suave Sophisticate 
it's just following the cultural trend into the right but what's interesting is what happens when you start to flip that on its head and in that sense i think that's what's clever about this film by trying to imbue it with the the mid you know the the for the fact that he's writing it with high school friends and he's trying to imbue it with that sense of where they're from <clears throat> you know allows him to give it an original tweak that is both simultaneously something that yes you want good films and books and what and other media artifacts to do because it it makes it relatable to you as an audience member um because for me the perfect example is always 24 you know, I remember when 24 started and everybody in the office I worked in was glued to 24. And the biggest problem with 24 is the is and the most unrealistic part of it, quite frankly, even uh, even with season two dropping a nuclear bomb a short way from L.A. and everyone's fine, is the fact that there's a ba- office full of backstabbing power hungry <laughs> colleagues screwing everyone out each other over, even though they're supposed to be protecting America. And it's like that's what most people relate to is the office stuff. And the fact he gets to run around and torture people and shoot people because of the frustration inside the office. And there's like, that's what made that show so damn successful for so long is, is, is amongst other things. But that's a key, key part of it. And I feel like Gross Point Blank, I feel like Cusack, again, you know, lightning in the bottle. This is a perfect blend of all these aspects. And that, that this opening scene, which we haven't even laid out in detail here, <laughs> we've mentioned it briefly, but this opening scene sets all of that up incredibly quickly as i said it's in media res he's in a room overlooking a street in in what is we now know as los angeles he's prepping a hit he's got a rifle um he's got his uh headset on for his mobile phone this is the early days of those early days of mobiles isn't it and and radio is he actually on a radio or is he actually on a phone i can never remember i think he's on a phone um i think he's on a phone but i'm actually not entirely sure yeah. One of the things that I, I, I being the the American of the two of us, I guess, uh, the, well, the freshly born, <laughs> yeah, new, newborn American that I am, I do feel like one of the things interesting to me in this action movie uh, is how relatively low key the the guns are for an action movie. Uh, okay. You know, it, I think, and and this harks on to the. Uh, the lack of special effects, the lack of blockbusters, right? Right. You have one rifle. You have a few semi-automatics at the end of the game, at the end of the um, movie, and and the Uzis, and the rest is just pistol work. Um, yeah, and that okay. feels very low key by today's standards, right? And and even when mm. he's talking about ordering. Because I mean, the the phone call is primarily to to put in the order for uh, re- replacement ammunition, right? For mm. uh, three eighty thousand rounds, three eighty thousand rounds, three fifty seven. Mm. They're both pistol grade. I mean, you don't actually mm. see those pistols in the movie, or at least not his ones. Uh, I think there's yeah. three fifty sevens that. Um, I mean, he's using grocer uses, but yeah, grocer uh, he's, uses. He's them. on block. He's yeah, which is interesting because of course <clears throat> the nineties is when things like the Glock became more visible to the public eye and made it into the movies. Um, you know, you go the eight, you go back to the eighties and you're mostly looking at big American classic handguns and it's about firepower and flashiness and showing off, you know, 
there's a reason these were still making Dirty Harrys in the 80s, you know? Um, yeah, the Caliber, Rambo. yeah. And then, of course, we had Rambo, as you say, although the irony is, of course, is that Rambo's M60 isn't a real M60 because Stallone couldn't lift the real thing. He wasn't strong enough, even after the gym. They had to make a modified version for the films that, that was light enough for him to carry. I love that. Plus also yeah. the fact that he, he never served in Vietnam because he was a PE teacher in a girls' school in, I think, Switzerland. <laughs> So I'm just going to leave that out there for my my take on Rambo, but but yeah, that was the era of of, of Arnie because Arnie could carry the big guns, you know. But that was the era when guns themselves started to become part of the attraction of films. I remember buying an issue of Guns and Ammo precisely because it featured all these TV and films that I was into yeah. at the time, and they went through all the guns. And for some reason, I know that, and like I don't like why do I know that. There's no right. need to but, know that, and this this film, yeah, this film doesn't do that. But as you say, and as you say, it keeps it very low key. But that, the other thing that's interesting about this is assassination. In theory, is about two things. It's either, it, in theory, it's about making it look like it's natural, or it's making it obvious because you want the people who are related to the person hit to know it's happened, right? Right. And in that sense, starting off with him using a rifle makes sense. Pistol stuff's interesting because you have to be up close and personal to a degree. It's not quite knife yes. work. But but also, I think the other thing with assassination is it is killing in a civilian context, right? Which means that you need mm. to be able to get out again, at least if you want to be yeah, able to do it. Yeah, again. yeah, yeah. And, and that's where the pistol man. comes in, right? It's, it's yeah. you know, pistols are concealable. But, like, I think they could have still brought in the big guns quite easily. You've got scenes where he's talking about the Gulf. You've got scenes where he's talking about the T-34s uh, yeah, in yeah. Uh, Vietnam or Korea. Yeah. Um, they, those, those could have so easily been flashback sequences. And I think in most movies these days, they would have been. Oh, of course, because these days, you know, the hero has to be trained and, you know, part of the the hero worship of the military that is very much more common where you are than it is here, although it's it's here too, you know, and it's like you have to make your hero have some link to professionalism because people are like, oh, I don't know how he'd know how to shoot otherwise, you know. It's not like the 60s where Joe Random is, or 70s rather, where Joe Random is suddenly the victim of a conspiracy but still knows how to use a gun kind of thing, right? It, yeah. it, it's, it's, become, it's come a long way, but actually I, I prefer... The fact that they don't show us that, I prefer that they don't, because it allows for an intensity of action that is more in keeping with, at that point, what was still fresh to westernize with John Woo and Hong Kong stuff, because it's about rounds fired yeah, rather than the gun itself. Although because... the next minute we'll get us into that a yeah. little bit. Um, yeah, yes. yeah. So what else? Uh, so yeah, making a hit. Uh, we haven't talked about where. I'm going to bring that up briefly, and we haven't finished on the actors, but we've covered Joan and we covered jo John. Um, we can talk about Minnie and Alan later. I think. Yes, we and talk I talk about I mean, the four I think main people. It's such a it's it's a relatively small cast. I think we're going to have plenty of time to talk about them as, okay. as well, the we'll, feature in the movie as well. I I, um, I have a daughter. I I actually saw Minnie Driver in the first short film that she did because the short film got nominated for I think a BAFTA and an Oscar and it, and it was back in the day when you could still see shorts on TV and I saw it late night on Channel 4 randomly and I was just like she's a great actress I'm going to follow her and that was like yeah so I'm definitely going to say that, talk about that for later but uh, let's just talk briefly about the actual location in question because 
we discovered when we were researching for this podcast that, uh, that this is a very familiar location. And so <clears throat> the the scene is in it's downtown Los Angeles. It is the Millennium Biltmore Hotel, which is still around, owned by Millennium Hotels, is very, very famous. It's featured in tons of movies and TV, but the bit that they use is not the bit everyone knows, which is the frontage. They're actually using the rear entrance, yeah. which is South Grand Avenue. Um, and it says something yeah. about a hotel when the rear entrance is quite as swanky and fancy looking <laughs> as that. Because, I mean, there are some seriously fancy hotels in New York that have frontages that are about as as swanky as that one is yeah absolutely absolutely um and interestingly enough it's next door to the re- a restaurant that was featured in chinatown for those of you who like your polanski classics um <clears throat> and that's a nice neat reference because of course chinatown was a, you know, an update of noir, tro- noir noir style for the 70s you know noir and color you know, noir with more 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 violence, more blood. Yeah, so it seems it's an appropriate nod. Uh, you know, it's it, this is uh, even if it, sorry, even if it's unintentional, it's a nice piece of you know connective tissue. Um, yeah, and actually, that noir vibe kind of takes us to the other set yeah. in this scene, which is uh, where Joan Cusack is sitting, which is the as we find out later, his office. Mm. Um, which, you know, is wood paneled, basically a two room office space in presumably some kind of large shared office building, uh, of a style that I, I can't really conceive of ever having existed, although I'm sure it must have done. Um, but one thing that, yeah. What do you mean you can't conceive of it? This is interesting. I want to know what you mean by that. Because I've grown up in in open plan modern oh, of course you yeah. right yes um, um i i you know i i just i can think of like hip loft spaces converted loft spaces and i can think of you know office space literally like the movie office space style offices mm. Mm. but this kind of old wood paneled office that you i somehow assume is always in new york or chicago mm. uh they they literally exist for me in this film, a few other like a few TV shows, and and then predominantly like the film noir genre, right? Where it's a two room office uh, with like um the entry space reception in the sec- main right the reception in the main office yeah yeah which yeah. brings me to the other really interesting point about that office, which is he set it in reverse. She sits in the main office and he sits at the reception desk. God, that's true. Whoa. Now, there's an argument to be made that it's because she's the one who's actually there the majority of the time. But I honestly think that there might, like, there's an element of that where it's very much a case of he would feel uncomfortable being the boss boss because that's not the way that he thinks. Well, well, it also goes back to this idea of what we think, what you think people in his line of work do and how they behave, right? Again, this is the kind of playing with the reality of it. Is she's his support? She's his. She's both his ha- simultaneously his handler and his in the field support. So he sees her as the person in charge, but. 
client facing wise, he's still the guy that they want to know is going to do the job. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Also, like he wants his back to the wall as opposed to to the windows as it would be in the office. And he wants to be close to the exit. And those are both those themes that he kind of speaks to at various points in the movie. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. That's really interesting. But also that gives, and that quite subtly gives Cusack greater, Joan Cusack greater power symbolically. Um, You know, while this works to his strengths, it also shows you his insecurities and it also shows you her strengths. And so people watching the film, if they don't pick up on it consciously, are subconsciously going to go, she's the boss. Yeah. Although, I don't think that illusion lasts very long. No, no, it doesn't. But I think it's interesting that the relationship between them is similar to that era of film you're discussing. There's a certain... It's not quite his Girl Friday, but there's a certain fast-talking male-female, you know, I'm doing everything that you need done because you need done because you don't know how to do it and you can't do it, but still... You know, I I need you to be doing the job, otherwise I don't have a job. Yeah, there's a certain dynamic there that yeah. is. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you can you can, there's a version of this film you, in another dimension that was shot by the Coen Brothers. You know, I'm not sure I want to see it, but I can. No, see it. no, but I'm just saying I, that I can that, perceive that, it. Yeah, yeah. That that that's very much in their wheelhouse. The whole proto, you know, neo noir, updating it. You know, keep having the dialogue have that snappiness of the forties and fifties. Um, yeah. And the, the playing with the roles, that's very Coen brothers. Yeah. And again, I, I don't mind mentioning that because I think Armitage ought to be mentioned in that. I think if he had a broader filmography and a wider set of films, he might have, he might be mentioned in there in the same breath. Yes. I think you're right. But yeah, I do. you know, so yeah. So, uh, you want to talk about the, ne- uh, the next bit, as it were, within this minute. So, Cusack, Joan's talking to John. John's busy trying to get ready. To- so, Martin Kublai is getting ready to shoot, where the, the, the victim is coming down uh, the street outside the, the hotel. Where, and I think LA. this takes us to the cyclist, right? Yeah. Um, so, I think the, the cyclist will get a little bit more time in the next minute, but the the okay. credit that pops up on screen as the cyclist is uh, coming down the street towards the hotel is that the original score is composed by the one and only Joe Strummer of The Clash, mm-hmm. which um, I don't know how deep we want to go into this because I know we're hoping not, to not... do minutes yeah. in the future, really I focused on the music. Yeah. Um, but, but if you, let's say it now, guys, if you don't know, uh, if you're young enough not to know who The Clash are, <laughs> Which is possible, okay? I mean, I know oh. I, I have to say that I'm a second school teacher. I'm so used to people not knowing certain things. Sad um, but true. Very true. Uh, so, one of the most important bands in British punk, you know, there's the Sex Pistols, who are the Rolling Stones, and then there's the Clash, who are the Beatles in that context uh, of that era in terms of creativity and style and just everything. And the Clash were the more political ones and they were the more uh, adventurous ones musically and they changed a lot of people's lives and defined a lot of people's v- version of what was punk 
because they were still yeah. there as things moved into new wave and and before they they broke up they were trying different things uh and joe strongmore was the lead singer songwriter guitarist you know had something of an interesting and unusual solo career um and he was a hero to many because of his outspoken politics as well and yeah, yeah just and, an important guy and in the case of this movie i think the music or the the soundtrack and the score are so core to what make this such a great movie and mm-hmm. why we think of this as you know not just a precursor to high fidelity but i think in a lot of ways superior to high fidelity agreed agreed i mean I think that's also because this film fundamentally addresses something that high fidelity doesn't, and that's a particularly toxic version of nerd masculinity. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. But, but, Although, but, but... I don't feel like high fidelity should address that directly. I, I, no, think, but that, I think I mean, if, if you're thinking of it in terms of the book, it is a film... We really need to stop talking about high fidelity. But, um, <laughs> is that our next one? <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> I mean, the, the toxic masculinity is just the running theme of Nick Hornby's novels. No, um, absolutely. I don't dispute that. But what I mean is in terms of Cusack. Fair. Yeah, yeah. You know, I feel like this is cleverer because it gets into the whole notion of Americans, violence, guns, army, you know, I think, and, and suburbia, you know. The yeah. the dream the thing at the home you know I think it, it's all yeah I think I th- I think it's you know people often praise the final shots of the Hurt Locker where Jeremy Renner what is like overwhelmed by the range of choice in the supermarket mm-hmm. and yeah you know everything that's at home and he the next thing you know he's he's going back yeah. you know and it's like. This film is there is something of that tonality in this film, and something of that sense of why did I, why what did I leave behind? Why did I leave it behind? Except that here, there's a realization about you know, <laughs> hey Tilly, there's a realization of cameo by Dev's dog. Uh, there's a there's a realization you know that that maybe there is something to be home for, and what is at home has value. Yeah, and and that's. Yes, I think that's true, and 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 it's one of the many reasons I love this film is that there is actually some optimism. There is a note of hope in this movie, mm-hmm. which I don't really feel in in High Fidelity particularly, no, and I don't, I don't want to feel in High Fidelity because it's not the, yeah the style of the film. I think there's a reason the Jack Black version of that character from the book has become not only the thing that a lot of people remember about that film, but Jack Black has built a career on it. <laughs> Yes, yeah. You know, there is something weirdly more acceptable about the weirdly the degree to which he is nerdy and proud of what he does, even though in in High Fidelity he's quite vicious about it. I think he he learns to temper that. There's nobody quite like him in this film, which is interesting. I mean, Piven's character is almost almost but not quite. Anyway, we'll come back to that in another episode. So I think that's this episode. I think you're right. Uh, This was minute two of the Gross Point Blank Movies by Minute podcast, Debbie Radio 79.5 FM, featuring your hosts and co-writers and co-producers, myself, Dev Sodega, and my esteemed colleague, Hugh Kenneth David. Uh, We are available on all good podcast players. 
Mm-hmm. We are also on YouTube. We're on X, aka former Twitter. Uh, let's see how long that lasts. Spotify uh, at the handle at Debbie Radio, uh, as well as on the website debbyradio.com. And if you're looking for those, it's spelled D E B I Radio. That's D E B I Radio. And if you want to uh, talk with us on Facebook, uh, our listeners group is Debbie Radio 79.5 FM Fan Club. Sure was clear that all of this was new. Concentrating hard like a little girl. Smoking for the first time.